Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all doing well, and uh, really warm welcome to you. You know, uh, Jenny, when you're back, I'm going to treat you like a new person because that's what we do with Jen Nang, but he's not even here this Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, if you have your if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter two. We've gone past the first chapter of John, so now onto the second one, and it's a really interesting passage to me. John chapter two. And I'll just read from verse 1 to verse 12. So follow along with me if you have that in front of you. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Thus the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And let me pray. Father, we thank you so much again for this wonderful time that you've given to us. And now we thank you especially, Lord, for the word that you have given to us. And we thank you for this little passage that we read of Jesus working this miraculous uh, sign. The first sign that John records for us in the gospel. And Father, we pray that as we consider this this morning, you would speak to us. And that your spirit would be working in our hearts to open our hearts to you. That we would not only see the truth, but receive it gladly and be changed by it. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts today. I saw this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this little passage, uh, you know, I mentioned to Steve, whenever I read it, always seems a little weird to me. And he's always said, don't, don't say that, you know. Um, because it seems to me to be so different from all the other miracles that you read about that Jesus does in his earthly ministry. You know, we read about in the other gospel accounts, and even here in John, that Jesus heals those who are lame, and He heals those who are sick. He even raises dead people from the grave. But here, this miracle seems almost insignificant in one sense. I mean, if they run out of wine, you know, the bride and the groom, they get embarrassed, that's it. There's no illness or anything happening here. So, to me, it's always seemed really, really strange. And, you know, when you read different people's takes on this passage, different people's approach to this little episode of Jesus turning water to wine, you'll see many people approach it in different ways. Some of them have thought, hey, you know, one, one thought is the Bible doesn't talk about anything supernatural because it's all myths. You know, the, the idea is that nothing supernatural could be possible. Therefore, all of these things are just folklore in order to inspire some kind of ethical living or whatever it is. And so that's how they interpret it. It's just something that's made up to help support some kind of idea. 
other people might approach it and say, well, this is clearly supposed to be, you know, uh, an analogy. And Jesus turning the water into wine is like how he changes us and makes us better. Like how wine is better than water. All that kind of stuff. But I think we have to get one thing very clear when we come to this passage. When we come to the book of John. If you remember perhaps, you know, two or three weeks ago, when I spoke on John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John is very adamant in telling you his purpose for writing this book is not to tell you how to live your life better. His purpose in writing this book is not merely to give some moral life lesson or to give you interesting stories that serve as analogies for life. He wrote this book as a witness. Now, I don't know if you guys watch, you know, maybe like Judge Judy, perhaps, in the daytime if you're bored. Or, you know, those, you imagine those, um, you know, court scenes in the movies, and they take the witness to the stand, and it's so intense, so stressful. And they say to the witness, place your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And the person says, you know, hand on the Bible. I, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. And the kind of implication there is, so God will punish me if I don't tell the truth. And in fact, you know, in America, under federal law, if you are found to be telling lies, well, you're going to be indicted for perjury, and you'll be a criminal instead. And so there, when a witness in the courtroom is putting their hand on the Bible and swearing to God to say, I will tell the truth when I'm here as a witness on this stand in front of this courtroom. You know, the idea there is they're taking it very seriously. And for John, when he writes this book, that's essentially what he's saying. He's holding his hands up saying, I am writing down everything that I have seen and heard with my own ears, my own eyes. And I'm swearing this before God in whom I believe in so desperately. I am giving you this as a written testimony of what I have witnessed. So what's really interesting is that the author himself doesn't allow these other kind of interpretations as much weight as simply this. What he has written is what he has seen. And what he has written down is what has actually happened. And so when we start considering this little passage, this strange occurrence of Jesus and his disciples and his family at a wedding, and the wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus just saying to Jesus, hey, there's no wine, almost this idea of, can you, can you do something about that? And Jesus reminding her, you know, my hour has not yet come. I don't have anything to do with these earthly complications or troubles. And yet he, he does something anyway. And he does this miracle of changing water to wine. What's all this about? Very simple answer. John is writing it because he saw it happen. He was one of those disciples with Jesus at that wedding. He probably would have said that was the best wedding ever. Because the wine was amazing. John was there. And he witnessed it with his own eyes, what had happened. And he heard with his own ears what Jesus had said. And so when he commits this down to paper, he's, he's telling us, as earnestly as I can, what I am writing is what I have seen. It has actually happened. So with that out of the way, you know, we can consider this passage a little bit more. And, you know, there's a lot of little details that are very fascinating that we could consider. But this morning, I think it will really help us just to focus on John's summary of why this event took place. There in verse 11, he says, Jesus, this is the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee 
and he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's what he says as a summary of what happened. This, the first of his signs, he did at Cana and Galilee. And this he did to manifest his glory. And as a result of this, his disciples believed in him. Now even there, I just want to note, you know, John is so particular about the fact that this is in Cana in Galilee. And he says, you know, in verse 1 of this chapter, third, the third day from now, Jesus did this. Again, just reinforcing that idea of a witness who is concerned with chronological and historical facts. Okay? And so he writes about this event that he has actually seen. And what's really interesting in this is that when John uses the word signs to describe what Jesus did, that should make us pay attention. He's not merely saying, Jesus did this. What a wonderful thing. What a miracle. We get to have wine. Jesus surely did this so the party could continue. That's not why Jesus did it. Jesus didn't turn water into wine so that everyone could keep making merry in celebration of the wedding. No, John says, this is the first of his signs. And that word sign is very important. It helps us to pay attention. As John understood it, this is the reason why Jesus did his miracles. In fact, all throughout the book of John, he will continuously refer to Jesus working great and supernatural miracles as signs. Now, very simply, what is a sign there to do? When you're driving on the way, perhaps to Hamilton, and you see a big sign saying, Hamilton, 68 kilometers, you don't stop at the sign and say, look, I'm in Hamilton. It says Hamilton. We recognize a sign is pointing to something else. The sign there is telling me that Hamilton is this way, about 68 kilometers that way. But the sign itself is not Hamilton. It's pointing towards where it is. And these signs that Jesus does are pointing towards something. We're not meant to just merely stop and be amazed at the sign. Wow, how amazing is it? That this thing happened but we are to be seeing what the sign is pointing towards and very simply what is this one pointing towards well John says in 11 manifested his glory what the sign is pointing towards is the glory of Jesus Christ now what does that word glory mean it seems almost archaic we don't really use it that often in our everyday life you know glory is simply referring to you know, the worth, the, the beauty, the majesty, the, the weight of something or someone. The glory of Jesus is referring to the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And this sign, John says, was a manifestation, a, a visible showing of His worth and His majesty. Now, how is this? How does this sign point to the majesty of Jesus? And, you know, this is, in one sense, chemistry. You're thinking about water, which is, you know, this liquid, and it becomes wine, which is this other liquid. So I thought, hey, I better, I better call in an expert. So I messaged my friend on Facebook. My friend is doing a PhD in chemistry, so I figured he would know his stuff. Surely, if anybody knew how easy or how hard this was, he would know. So I messaged my friend, and I said, hey, bro, you know, to change water into wine. Now, chemically speaking, how hard is this? And he said to me, he said, dude, if you want to change water 
to wine and alcohol, you have to add molecules to the molecular structure of the water. I said, okay, you know, and he starts talking about H2O and CH3, CH2OH, whatever it is. And he's saying, but basically what it is, is that to change water into alcohol, you have to be adding molecules into that water to make it alcohol, to make it into wine. So, you know, to summarize it, I said, so basically what you're saying is, in order for this to happen, for water to become wine without anything else happening, you're saying that matter had to be created out of nowhere and added to the water in order for that to be possible. Is that what you're saying? He says, yeah, well, yeah pretty much. And that's why, you know, he says when we do it in, in the lab, we have to add stuff and react stuff so that it becomes this and that. And so, you know, after getting the expert analysis, you know, I look at this passage and we read, Jesus didn't go and add some reagents and heat it up so that the reaction would happen and the water would become wine. What did Jesus do? In fact, what's amazing to me is that Jesus doesn't even get up from his seat. He doesn't go over to the water jars and start recanting some great ritual or start calling on the name of God for power. He merely commands the servant to go. Why don't you go fill up the water jars there? Six big water jars. Fill it up with water. And why don't you go take the water and just draw it up and take it to the master of the feast. What did Jesus do? He sat in his seat and he willed for the water to become wine. Quietly, easily, without effort. All Jesus did was will that matter be created and added to the water. Matter that did not exist until that point. Who could do that? <coughs> Excuse me. Who could create matter out of nothing and add it to something in order to make water become wine? Surely no man can do that. In fact, if you catch up on the latest scientific journals, I don't know if you do. Uh, I don't normally, but I did it for this sermon just to research and see what they had to do. Do you know the latest advances in this idea of creating matter is the, the, the latest step that we've gone to is to smash light beams together, laser beams together, and photons, which is the, the molecule of the light, at a million or a billion times more energy than the light wave usually has just to try and turn energy into matter, something with mass. They're, they're creating all these big machines and beaming laser beams together so that the explosion somehow would create matter. And even there, all we can do is merely turn energy, which already existed, into something else, another form. And yet here, Jesus does something so easily and so effortlessly. He does the impossible by creating molecules and attaching it to the water to make it what it was not. Who could do this? Can a mere prophet do this on his own power? Or perhaps if we take notice what John says right from the beginning of his gospel, he is writing about the Word through whom all things were created and without whom was not anything made that was made. Verse 3 of John chapter 1. Perhaps if we take seriously what John has to say, he says, I'm writing about the Word 
that was with God and who was God. The creator of all things. That's what I'm writing about. It starts to make sense. For who could create matter out of nowhere but God the creator? And so as we consider this passage, just this little simple, quiet miracle, very simple sign of Jesus changing water into wine, we can see His glory made visible in His interaction with the created world. For Him, so easy to change something and to create something that was not. And all this is telling us the glory that Jesus has is not the glory of a mighty prophet merely. And is not the glory of a great ethical teacher, a great man who changed history. The glory of Jesus is the glory of God the Creator. The glory of Jesus is the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John chapter 1 verse 14. And all throughout the Gospel of John, He is going to be telling us, look at what Jesus did, the wonderful things that He achieves. All of that is telling us, is manifesting to us, making visible His divine glory. Proving to us that Jesus is the Son of God, divine, made flesh. That's what this whole thing is all about. The simple miracle of water to wine was for the purpose of making visible, making plain the glory of Jesus as the divine Son of God. Please don't miss this. Because all that Jesus does is pointing to this fact. He is showing us who He really is. Now what's really interesting, and we've got to consider this as we close, because there in verse 11 it talks about Jesus manifesting His glory, but then it says, and His disciples believed in Him. And if we recall some of the little details in this passage, not everyone knew what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say, alright everyone, stop the party, there's no more wine, but check this out. In order to get everyone's attention. No, He, he only commanded the servants. And so we get from the story only the servants knew what happened, only his disciples, and probably only the mother of Jesus. His brothers were probably partying too hard. Only a select few knew what Jesus did. And as his disciples saw how he so easily did this, and, and thought to themselves, this is more than just a man. Surely he is the Son of God. It says that they believed in him. Now, we know from the first chapter, they had already believed in Him somewhat. They had already confessed He is the Son of God. He is the, the chosen Christ, the King of Israel. That's what Nathaniel confessed. And yet John says here, because they saw this, they believed in Him. And so what we, what we see is that in response to them seeing the glory of Jesus through this sign, their faith was so stirred up and so improved that they believed on Him with a renewed sense of strength. The glory of Jesus was shown, not just to show off, but in order to build and to encourage and to strengthen 
the faith of his disciples. How wonderful is that? As the, as the disciples got a little sense of the glory of Jesus, they believed in him and their faith in him increased. And so if the glory of Jesus is meant to increase faith, and we consider this passage, does that mean it's for us? Because clearly Jesus restricted the audience. He didn't let everybody know. He only let his disciples know. Well, actually, that was the case in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He didn't let everybody know about him. In fact, many times throughout the gospel accounts, especially in the gospel of Mark, we read Jesus telling people to keep secret what he had done. He heals the leper and he heals the lame. And he says, don't tell anyone about this. He's keeping them secretive. Why does he do that? Well, because as Jesus says, I think there in verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. He is referring to his earthly ministry. His public ministry has not yet come to fruition. And so for that little while, while he is there on earth, these things are meant to be kept secret and kept only for his disciples. Ah, but things are different now because Jesus has finished all that he needed to do on earth. He has gone to the cross and has been raised from the grave. His earthly ministry is finished. And after his earthly ministry was concluded, we know that he commanded the disciples now to make what was secret public, to make what was hidden known to all the corners of the world. And that's exactly why John now writes in this gospel, this is what we saw in secret and what we kept hush-hush but now Jesus has risen. He is now alive. And we are now tasked with bringing this to the ends of the world. What was hidden then is now made public. Declared even to us in this little corner of the world called New Zealand. We can read and see through the eyes of John. The very same glory that he saw at that wedding. When you read this passage, you can see the very same glory that John saw at that wedding. And you know, for John and the disciples, it was intended to bring out of them and to create in them faith. What is the intention for us this morning? What does God want to happen within our hearts as we think about the glory of Jesus? He wants us to have faith. He is meaning for us to, to see this little glimpse of the divine glory of Jesus Christ. And He wants us to think in our hearts, Wow, I want to know Him. I want to trust in Him. I want to believe in Him. There is no other Son of God. There is no other Christ, no other Savior, no other Lord, no other glorious person as Jesus. I believe in Him. I want to take seriously the testimony of John. That's the intention of God showing the glory of Jesus in this passage. And I really pray that you would see that this morning. And your heart, if you already believe in Him, your faith would increase. And of course, if it can serve to increase faith, it can serve to create faith. 
And if you do not yet believe in Jesus, I would urge you to take seriously what John and all the other biblical writers has to say. Take seriously their testimony. Many of them died to give that testimony, to tell us of what they have seen and what they have heard. Take it seriously and consider what they had to say about this glorious person, this Jesus of Nazareth, of who he really is, and believe on him. So, you know, just to close, I really want you to think of the Bible not as a guide for life. Don't come to the Bible and say, you know, I need to fix my problems. God, would you tell me how in this book of life? Now, the Bible is there primarily not to tell us about ourselves, but to tell us about God and to tell us about Jesus. Or you can more specifically say to tell us all about the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when you come to the Bible, ask these questions. What is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about Jesus? And, you know, you can pick it up at the Gospel writers and just read what they have to say as testimony, as witness. And let them tell you all about this Jesus that they have seen and walked with and had fish and bread together with. Let them tell you about how He lived and what He taught. And as a result, let your heart open with faith toward Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him that He is who they say He is. Pick up the Bible and read for yourself what they have to say that you would come to know Him and that by believing in His name, you would have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and we thank You, Lord, that in Your great love for us, You have preserved in paper, in writing, the testimony of many of Your saints, Your apostles, Your prophets, and we can have this wonderful privilege of holding their testimony all collected together in one book in our hands. Father, would you put it in our hearts to seek after you and to read what they have written in order to come to know you in truth and to believe in you. And we know, Lord, that you will accept and you will embrace all who approach you in faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So give us that faith, Lord. Help us to read and to have faith spring up from our hearts. Um, all this to your glory. Pray, Lord, that you would bless us now for the rest of this morning and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.